Let's open our Bibles to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. If you were here this morning, you heard about the important work of Bible translation that is going on. And I hope that uh, if you were here, you were reminded of what a treasure we have in the Word of God, the fact that you can read it in your own language and hear from the Lord. It is truly, truly a treasure and a blessing from the Lord. Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And the Lord bless the reading of his word. Growth can produce pain. When a church grows, certain adjustments need to be made that can be rather bothersome. Having to change locations in order to be together or having to adjust to new formats, formats or having to endure certain inconveniences, etc. All that can be captured in the expression growing pains. And that's the type of thing that we see here in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. The beginning of growing pains for the Jerusalem church. But if you think making room for more people can be challenging, you haven't seen anything yet. When God called Abraham to leave his land and to begin his journey into a new land, this was the promise given to him. In you, how many families? All the families of the earth will be blessed. All the families of the earth will be blessed. So God made Abraham into a nation known as the Jews, but the blessings associated with that nation were not meant to be confined to that nation alone. It was a worldwide plan from the beginning. We just read it this morning, Psalm 96, verse 10. Say among the nations. This is what God told Israel. Say among the nations. Among whom? Among the nations. The Lord reigns. The Lord reigns. The gospel, then, is meant to shake the entire world. In that sense, the gospel is like an earthquake. There is always an epicenter, but the effects are felt way beyond it. The epicenter of the gospel was Jerusalem, but its effects are felt all over 
the world, even in Glenrose, Texas. Undoubtedly, nothing, nothing in this world can stop the power of the gospel. But as the gospel spreads everywhere, challenges will naturally come with it. Why? Well, because the gospel spreads in a world full of sin, full of sin. And sin wants to fight back. Have you ever had that happen to you? It is like an open wound that is infected. I know it's not the prettiest picture. It's like an open wound that is infected. You pour salt in it and the infection will react. Likewise, God's truth calls us to unity. But at times, remaining sin reacts. So let's look at the text this morning. Let's, let's walk through the text. In verse 1, we read that the church was growing. Good news. Isn't that great? Yes, that is good news. Luke tells us that the disciples were increasing in number. That is always good news. We want that for every church that is preaching the truth. But here's the, the pain that came with the growth. Two worlds collide. Two worlds collide. Hellenists and Hebrews. In its earliest stages, the church was made up of Jews, that is, Jews from Palestine, Jews native to Jerusalem and the immediate surrounding areas. These were also known as the Hebrews, the Hebrews. But in verse 1, we are introduced to another group known as the Hellenists. And that, my friends, says it all says it all. This is not a minor detail, but a very important one. It reveals that the growing pains in the Jerusalem church were more severe than anything we could experience here because the root cause of the pains was not the statement, we need to make room for more people. That was not it. Rather, it was the question, do we really need to get along with those people? For Hebrews and Hellenists to be put together in one room was no small thing. So who were the Hellenists? Well, the word Hellenism is a reference to the worldwide impact that was brought about by the Greek conqueror Alexander the Great. It is a well-known fact that he had conquered most of the then-known world. Therefore, Greek culture including the language, was predominant everywhere, even in the Roman Empire. The world back then was mostly Greek. The word Hellenism captures that reality, captures that reality. Thus, the Hellenists were Jews who either had been born or lived most of their lives outside of Palestine in places such as Egypt or different areas within Asia Minor. The Hellenists were Jews who were highly or mostly influenced by Greek culture. Now, what brought the Hebrews and the Hellenists together? Well, Pentecost. Remember, when the Spirit descended to empower the first disciples, we read in chapter 2, verse 5 of Acts, that there were Jews gathered in Jerusalem from where? Every nation under heaven. This obviously included the Hellenists, the non-Palestinian Jews. Animosity was already present between the Hebrews and the Hellenists. 
it was always a back and forth. One historian said that the Hebrews thought of themselves as the true Jews due to the fact that they were born and raised in their own land, the land of their ancestors, while the Hellenists were corrupted by pagan culture. The Hellenists, on the other hand, thought of themselves as more civilized and open-minded, while the Hebrews lacked culture. They were narrow-minded and trapped in tradition. So this is the baggage these two groups brought with themselves, and now they're supposed to spend a lot of time together. But things are only going to get more and more challenging for the church. You see, Hebrews and Hellenists were two different groups, but they were both Jewish. Wait until you add Samaritans and Gentiles into the mix. Is there a lesson for us in all of this? Yes, there's a huge lesson for us, and you will see that soon enough. But as I said, tensions were already in place between the Hebrews and the Hellenists. And as it is expected, a complaint arises. A complaint arises. What is the complaint? One word, neglect. With the growth came the pains. And so at some point, the Greek-speaking Jews voiced their complaint against the Hebrews. Now, as you can imagine, being in the thousands already, things would have been somewhat chaotic. The text does not tell us whether the complaint was well-founded or not. The text doesn't say whether the Hellenists had a point or if they were simply misinterpreting the facts due to their animosity against the Hebrews. Both are a possibility. But the point is that the complaint was verbalized from the Hellenists, the Greek-speaking Jews. And what was the complaint? Our widows, said the Hellenists, are being neglected in the daily distribution of food. Caring for widows was already a well-established practice for the church, the early church. Everyone knew that widows could not take care of themselves. They were destitute. And apparently, they had quickly developed a system to ensure everyone was well cared for, especially widows. You remember reading in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4, clearly stated that these believers were very diligent in taking care of each other. They gave selflessly and they gave generously, but there could have been some oversight coming from the Hebrews or even some discrimination going on. We really don't know. It is possible. What we do know, and and this is an important thing to remember, What we do know is that these Christians, the ones that we read about in the book of Acts, they were real people, just like you and I. They were real people with real sin, who were now having to learn to be together under the banner of Christ the Lord. This was not a perfect gathering. Does that give you hope? This was not a perfect gathering but there's something beautiful for us to learn here. But in the middle of this tension, a a solution is given. A solution is given. So we keep walking through the text. What is the solution given? Exemplary deacons. Exemplary deacons. Now, I know what you might be thinking. What's up with the word deacon? Why did I use the word deacon when it is not even in the text? Well, Even though the word deacon does not appear 
That is only an illusion created by the English translation. It is actually there in the original. Here's how verse 2 reads. It is not right that we should give up preaching the word to diaconane, tables. Did you get it? Did you hear the word? I'm going I'm to read it to you again. It is not right that we should give up preaching the word to deacon, tables. To deacon, tables. In other words, to be a deacon is to deacon. That's what deacons do. They deacon. To be a servant is to serve. But what does that look like? Well, in this particular case, it was literally to serve tables, taking food to people. But the word deacon is a very broadly defined word. It simply means to serve. That's what deacons do. But don't let the simplicity of that word fool you. It is quite revealing, and I will say more during the lessons. For now, consider two things with me. First, look at the requirements. Look at the requirements for those servants. These servants, the Word of God says, must be full of the Spirit, full of wisdom, and full of faith. Moreover, they must also have a good reputation. These are not insignificant requirements. And if you notice, all of them have to do primarily with character. They are not just servants, but exemplary servants. This immediately tells us an important truth related to the ministry of deacons, and it is this. Faithful service in the church should never be separated from godly character. Faithful service in the church should never be separated from godly character. Service is not to be done in isolation, but always within the context of a robust communion with God. In fact, if we read this rightly, the apostles are saying that service is the very outflow of the inner spiritual life of the servant. But why is that important? Isn't service just that? Service? Apparently not. Character really mattered to the apostles. The apostles were not interested in service for the sake of service, but in service as the outflow of true godliness. Moreover, if it is correct to say that this establishes the foundation for all subsequent deacon ministry in the church, and I think that would be correct, why are the requirements so high? Now, we will answer that soon. But secondly, check out those names. I'm not going to try to pronounce them again. Those names, they are quite important to the story. They have something in common. They are all Greek names, which means that they came out of the Hebrews or the Hellenists? The Hellenists rather than the Hebrews. That, my friends, was God's providence guiding the whole selection. How so? Well, the Hebrews spoke primarily Aramaic. Aramaic, and some Greek. The Hellenists, on the other hand, spoke primarily Greek and some Aramaic. Now consider this. Soon, these Christians will be scattered because of severe persecution. And these deacons will be driven away from Jerusalem. But as they are driven away, they will take the gospel of Jesus Christ with them into other parts of the world. Who better equipped 
to take the gospel into a Hellenized world than the Hellenist. Providentially, these deacons, as we will see in the weeks ahead, will become the first evangelists of the church. Now, a qualification is made by the apostles in verses 2 and 4. Very important qualification. This is the apostolic priority. Apostolic priority. In a time in which things looked a bit chaotic, the apostles were very clear as to what their main duty and priority was. Pray and preach. John Stott made a very helpful comment here, and I quote, There is no hint, whatever, that the apostles regarded social work or serving as inferior to pastoral work or beneath their dignity. Rather, it was entirely a question of calling. They had no liberty to be distracted from their own priority task, end quote. In other words, the apostles had no right to redefine their calling. They were called primarily to preach and teach and pray. To assume other responsibilities would have been an affront to Christ's command upon them. You see, this is when knowing who called you into the ministry matters. The apostles did not call themselves into the ministry as apostles. Jesus Christ called them to be apostles. They were under his rules, not their own. And that's an important lesson to learn. No pastor gets to decide what his priorities are. Jesus Christ does. The authority of Jesus reached even into how the apostles used their time. How they used their time. They were under orders from the Lord to give themselves fully and entirely to prayer and the preaching of the word. I love this for it reminds us that the apostles lived indeed, quotam Deo, always in the sight of God. Remember that? But the beauty of this is that they lived quotam Deo everywhere, whether they were under hostile interrogation or simply deciding on church matters. They knew themselves to always be in the sight of God. They knew whom they served. Their orders did not come from the people, but from God. Coram Deo was simply their way of life. It wasn't arbitrary then to say, it is not right that we should give up preaching, or we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. They were sent primarily to preach God's word. Not even the apostles were free to minister any way they wanted. They were themselves under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, we see here in our text, one truth is established. One truth is established. What is that truth? This is from God. Why do you think Luke is so interested in pointing out the fact that the disciples were increasing in number? I think there is a specific reason. This, in fact, reminds us of what we discovered last week. Remember what Gamaliel said? He said that when the leader of a movement dies, what happens to the followers? They disappear. They go away. That's how you find out if something is from man or from God. 
So I don't think verse 1 or 7 are random. I think the author is making a point, a very strong point. Luke really wants us to know that this movement is growing. So what is the conclusion? Well, this is from God. The only explanation of this growth is supernatural power. It is the work of God himself. Jesus did rise from the dead, and the Spirit did indeed come. This is from God. This is why this is growing. There is no other explanation. Unfortunately, as we will see in the coming weeks, this will only evoke greater jealousy coming from the unbelieving Jews, even to the point of murder. They are about to murder the first Christian So that's the text. So now the question is, what do we do with it? What is in it for us in the 21st century church? What are the takeaways? The word is the same, but the context is different. So here are a few lessons for us to take with us today. Number one, the church is gospel power on display. The church is gospel power on display. Hellenists and Hebrews together? That's a recipe for not disaster. That's a recipe for the power of the gospel to be put on display. Do you want to see the power of the gospel in visible form? Take two groups of people that don't normally hang out together and see if Christ can hold them together. Even in the midst of significant differences. By the way, this is one of the core reasons our philosophy of ministry is the way it is here at GCC. This is practical application for us right now. We believe, we truly believe, the elders truly believe that the church is the power of the gospel put on display. And we want to be consistent with that conviction. This is reflected very clearly in our approach to care groups. Care groups, as you know, we mix them up every two years. Why in the world do we do that? We do it because we think that the gospel of Jesus is what unites us. It is the gospel of Jesus what unites us. So it is not ultimately our common interests, our hobbies, or this or that which brings unity to the church. The church enjoys supernatural unity because it is the outflow of the work of Jesus by the Spirit. It is a serious mistake in my mind, my estimation, reading the Bible. I believe it is a serious mistake to seek to manufacture unity within the church, around common interests, backgrounds, or stages in life. Those things are good, but the common bond for Christians is Christ and Christ alone. Now, having said that, we also need to understand that having Christ as our common Lord and Savior does have practical implications. There's no question about the fact that both Hebrews and Hellenists eventually had to give up certain preconceived ideas about other people, about politics, about social life, and about relationships in order to conform their lives to the lordship of Jesus Christ. 
And so, this is what I mean by the church being the power of the gospel on display. It doesn't just mean, well, I guess we have to put up with everyone who disagrees with us. But also, it means this, I have to learn, I have to learn what it means to think and live under the lordship of Jesus Christ. This is why Paul told the Romans to be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Does your mind need to be renewed? Mine does, daily. Living under the lordship of Jesus means precisely that. The Christian life is about understanding the practical implications of these three words. Jesus is Lord. That's what the Christian life is. You are called to understand what that means. Jesus is Lord. Remember what uh, uh, the Old Testament called the Israelites to do? Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Three words. We say, Jesus is Lord. Now go find out what that means. That is the Christian life. What does it mean that Jesus is Lord for our gatherings? for our care groups, for our relationships, for our giving, for our preferences, for our views on sexuality, for our views on politics. Does Jesus have anything to say about what we think on sexuality, on politics, the way we dress, the way we treat our bodies? It is all an implication of those three words. Jesus is Lord. It wasn't always pretty for the Hellenists and the Hebrews to be together, but that was always the main question. The main question always is, are we all seeking to know what it means to live life under the lordship of Jesus? If yes, then our differences will be within the realm of grace and not of judgment. So let me say it this way. Church life is not difficult. Church life is not difficult. Apart from Jesus and the Spirit is impossible. Only as you and I submit ourselves to Christ Jesus in faith and by His grace can we remain together even in the midst of differences. And so next time you find yourself dealing with conflict in the church, and before you say or do anything, just ask yourself this one question. Am I seeking to submit myself to the lordship of Jesus over me? Are my words, my actions, my thoughts, and my attitudes reflective of one who is under authority? Because that's what we are. That's what Christians are. People who have acknowledged the lordship of Jesus. Listen, I doubt, I doubt the Hellenists knew much theology. I don't think they did. But they knew this, three words. Jesus is Lord. How do we live together with those who have acknowledged the same? That is the question. Here's the second lesson for us. Qualified deacons hold a critical role for the church. Qualified deacons hold a critical role for the church. 
When was the last time that you thought about our deacons, our precious brothers who serve? A few moments ago, I said that the qualifications expected from these servants, these deacons, were very high. And I asked the question, why? Now, I would like to try to answer that question. Deacons embark on a very high calling because they are the very embodiment of the ministry of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Who else can best represent the Lord Jesus to others than the ones whose very calling is to what? To serve. After all, think about it with me. How did Jesus himself describe his own ministry? Do you remember what he said? One day, two of his disciples went up to Jesus and said this, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. How about that? Not so serving at all. But it didn't end there. Here's what they wanted from Jesus. They said, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Nothing much. All we want is exaltation to the highest place, second only to you, Jesus. Talk about ambition, huh? All they wanted was a bit of delegated authority over all things in heaven and on earth. No biggie. But don't miss how Jesus answered their request. He tells them that for the Gentiles, meaning for those who are of the world, authority is a mark of greatness. Authority comes with greatness. These two disciples wanted authority because ultimately they wanted greatness. Jesus knew exactly what they wanted. And then Jesus said this, Mark 10, 43, But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your diakonos. Your diakonos. Your deacon. Your servant. And here's the climax of the answer. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus defined the very purpose of his coming into the world with the word serve. Deacons have a high calling because they are an example of godly service, a service that flows out of a transformed heart. So I hope no deacon will ever feel overlooked or underappreciated, for in your quiet, often behind-the-scenes service, you are representing the Lord himself. Can you think of a higher calling? Here's another lesson. Prayer and the Word are non-negotiable duties. Prayer and the Word are non-negotiable duties. As I mentioned, the apostles did not want to serve tables not because they were too good for it, but because they were under authority. It was Jesus who defined their task, not themselves. And here's something that I don't want you to miss. Notice verse 4 once again. Notice what the apostles said in verse 4. We will devote ourselves to prayer and to what? To the ministry of the word. The what of the word? The ministry of the word, surprisingly, 
the word ministry happens to be diakonia. Once again, deacons are everywhere here. The apostles were deacons as well, but they served something different. They served the word. They brought the word of God to God's people. While the deacons fed people's bodies, the apostles fed their souls with the word. And I think there is a, at least one important parallel to be noted here. If Acts chapter 6 provides the foundation for every deacon ministry, I believe it also provides the foundation for every pastoral ministry. Prayer and the word will always be the priority of pastoral ministry. To disregard these two duties is to risk the very essence of the Christian ministry. Pastors who neglect their call to prayer and the word do so at the risk of their own souls and of their people. Pastors must be men of prayer and of study first and foremost. I still remember hearing the story of a, a pastor whom I knew personally who was a church planter in a different country. He came out of a very seeker-sensitive church, and he was sent to start a new ministry in Venezuela. And they already had a group going for them. One time he mentioned how he simply did not have time for study and for sermon preparation during the week. He had too many other things going, so he simply took someone else's sermons and he preached them on Sundays. But he himself spent very little to no time in the Word. Terrible, terrible mistake. That is, in fact, the worst mistake a pastor could make. You see, what that pastor forgot was a very simple rule. You don't get to make the rules regarding your calling. You simply follow the rules already given to you by Jesus in his word. To Pastor Timothy, Paul said, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in these, for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. 1 Timothy 4, 13 through 16. In other words, don't go around busying yourself with a bunch of other things that are non-essential. Your calling is clear. 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. The greatest danger to any church is when its pastor loses his priority. My brothers and sisters, here is a call for you. Pray for your pastors here at GCC. Pray that we won't lose sight of the main thing, prayer and the preaching and teaching of God's word. And speaking of the word, here's another lesson. The word increases in spite of our weaknesses. The word increases in spite of our 
weaknesses. The word of God continued to increase. One of the things that uh, my family and I have discussed several times is how honest the Bible is. Have you noticed how honest the Bible is? Just the other day, we were thinking about the fact that the Bible never seeks to hide the flaws, and even in some cases, terrible flaws of God's people. Likewise, in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, it shows us that the Christian church is not a perfect community. It is made up of imperfect people, and sometimes being together can be a challenge. The Bible does not present Christians as always having a good time and a peaceful time. For the Hebrews and the Hellenists, this togetherness was not easy. And the Bible certainly does not hide that fact. But at the same time, it also communicates that the progress of God's word in the world is not ultimately dependent on our ability to get along. And that's good news. Why? Because the word of God will never return void. It will always accomplish the purpose for which it was sent. And this is what we see in the book of Acts. We see the word of God breaking through human sin and creating something that can only be attributed to God himself. We could say it like this. In Acts, we see the sovereignty of God's word doing what it is meant to do even in the middle of human struggle, tensions, and complaints. So what is our calling? Well, we persevere. We attend to the preaching and the teaching of God's word. This is the highest calling and the greatest need of the church, to persevere in listening to the word of God and believing in the word of God. And so here's another lesson. Faith and obedience are not mutually exclusive. Here's another lesson we learned from the, the first Christians. Faith and obedience are not mutually exclusive. Luke ends by saying that many priests became obedient to the faith. This expression is not unique to Acts. In Romans, Paul said that his desire was to bring about the obedience of the faith for the sake of Christ's name among all the nations in Romans 1.5. And then in Romans 10.16, he also said, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. I have a question for you. Is the gospel something we believe or something we obey? Yes. Yes. When we come to believe the gospel... What is it that we are confessing? That Jesus is Lord. Those three words again. Jesus is Lord. So let me ask you this. Can you separate your faith in Jesus as Lord from your obedience to Jesus as Lord? Megenoito. That's the Greek expression of Paul. May it never be. May it never be. Faith and obedience are not enemies. We are not saved by obedience. We are saved by faith in Jesus. But a faith that does not produce obedience can hardly be called faith. Remember this. The apostles lived by faith as shown in their walk of obedience. What a critical lesson for us. 
And here is a final lesson. And now we will be, I'll begin to connect a few dots for our, our upcoming section in chapter 7. Don't miss Jesus in the Bible. Don't miss Jesus in the Bible. One of the first deacons of the church, namely Stephen, is about to take us into an incredible journey. Everything will begin to unfold before our very eyes as we enter into chapter 6, verse 8, all the way through chapter 7, verse 60. Charges will be brought up, a question will be asked, and the answer given by Stephen will lead us all the way up to the throne of God himself. I believe this will be one of the highlights of our study in the book of Acts. But here's a short preview. In the weeks and months ahead, this one truth will become absolutely clear. If you miss Jesus, you miss everything. If you miss Jesus in the word, you miss absolutely everything. Stephen will take us by the hand, as it were, and lead us into a journey of true beauty and wonder with Jesus at the very center of it all. So I'm going to ask you to pray for me so that I know how to best bring you the riches of what lies ahead. But as it is, Jesus is still the center of all things. What you see in the lives of the first Christians, even in their struggles, was a new life which is only possible in Christ, through faith in Christ, that is. The church is only possible because Jesus died and rose again. The Christian life is only possible because Jesus died and rose again. This gathering is only possible because Jesus died and rose again. So I finish by simply inviting you to believe, to believe in the one who died and rose again, Jesus of Nazareth. He is Lord. And if you, and if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, you, you will be saved. This is not my promise. It is God's promise to you. Believe in the Lord Jesus today. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for being good and kind to us. We know this because we were lost in darkness. We were lost in sin. And yet your grace made us alive. You made us alive together with Christ. By grace, we have been saved. And we thank you for the work that you started, even all the way back with Abraham, by calling him out of his land into a new land. And we thank you that we are now the ones who benefit from your faithfulness for you did say, in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Thank you, Father, that we are among them.
we are among the ones who have been blessed through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that this gospel will continue to increase both here locally and around the world. We pray that the nations will know your name in the name of the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray that you will use us for the spread of your truth. And all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.